Episode Eight: Meeting Visions. Whoo! Big, big week for me. Big recording for me this week. Uh, likely, you'll understand what that, what I mean by that, and why by the end of this episode. But I'm gonna refrain from explaining it any further and jump right in here. First, allow me to connect last week's episode to next week's episode through this week. So last week was titled, Anything is Possible, which is the tagline for a company that I've been very much involved with for the past five and a half years called Iron Man. And the topic that we spoke about primarily last week was my experience at Microsoft and in the city of Seattle. Now, before we connect it to next week, let me also remind folks that the first 12 episodes are intended to be listened. The best way to try to feel and hear and receive the bigger picture that I'm painting and all the various layers of it and the intersecting, interweaving stories is to listen to all 12 episodes in order together as a chunk. Okay? And in episodes 2 through 11, I am basically sharing stories and experiences from some of the most, the biggest segments of our mainstream world prior to COVID, because everything is shifting at present here at the end of August 2020, taking the biggest segments of my experiences, people and experiences where there's a potential to have what I'm attempting to be a conduit of my greater mission be spread through these networks by reaching out to the individuals about whom I'm referencing and speaking in each episode from episode two through 11. And what is it that I'm looking to spread? Well, to be honest with you, it changes The specifics aren't hashed out, and now I understand why they're not yet hashed out because of the significant global shift taking place right now, where quite literally, my belief is that everything is shifting in huge ways. The way we do business, the way we educate our kids, the way we uh, interact with one another, the way that we have healthcare, the way that we're quote unquote governed everything in enormous ways is shifting right now, you know, right before our eyes, right under our feet. And therefore, even though I've been imagining this and working for this now very consciously for eight years, sort of in a waiting period for the next few months, we got to see what things are going to look like in 2021 before the specifics of my project that started this, Ripple 2020, is the, uh, is the project I introduced in episode one. And generally speaking, Ripple 2020 is what I'm hoping and intending to spread through these very influential individuals of, which, of whom I'm speaking in these first episodes. Okay. So last week, we talked about Iron Man and Microsoft, primarily Microsoft. Episode 12 is going to be entirely dedicated to Iron Man. And I also mentioned seemingly a bit out of place, but I had to weave it in. My experiences, and it also just happens to represent my, my most prevalent energetic presence in my day right now are my experiences with this organic farm called Jessica's Stand here in Sarasota, Florida. And the tremendous influence that the farmer has had on me, his physical manifestation of his vision through his farm, growing organic produce for 40 years, long before organic was the in thing. This guy is the real deal. And all the people that I have met through that farm community. And for multiple reasons, I needed to introduce that. And without going too far on that tangent, as it pertains to this week, the connecting point is this 
little hippie college called New College that is here in Sarasota, Florida. By far, the vast majority of people involved with the farm, certainly when I started there back in 2008, the first time I lived in Sarasota from 2008 to 2010, I was a full-time plus worker at the farm. I had just stepped out of the mainstream world and had finally had the courage to take that first baby step to start following the much bigger calling that was taking place within me. And my first step was to leave teaching and to come. And my, it was my brother that influenced me. He is a new college graduate and was a worker at the farm. And prior to moving to Seattle, he encouraged me to take a little side journey here in Sarasota. And most of the employees at that time, the new college community in Sarasota and the farm community, there was a lot of overlap there. And this week, in this week's episode, we're specifically talking about a man named Rick Doblin and his presence on Joe Rogan's show. And my desire in the future here, in the not so distant future, to reach out to Rick once I have something a little bit more substantial in place for him and an ask of him to try to expose this work to Joe Rogan. And Rick happens to be the most, arguably one of the most famous, if you will, successful, famous graduates of New College. And Rick's organization, the acronym for the organization that Rick Doblin founded and serves and, you know, as the president and, you know, main guy, the acronym is MAPS. And it stands for Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Specifically, they are doing work with MDMA and looking to scientifically prove its benefits, most notably in treating PTSD and looking to have it be FDA-approved MDMA to help PTSD patients. They also do research and studies on other psychedelics, but they're primarily uh, have researched MDMA. Not that I am super well-versed in what MAPS does, but again, you know, I'm, I'm touching down just generally and setting the tone here. And anybody that knows Joe Rogan, I don't need to explain further how big he has become, specifically and most notably of late in the podcast world. He was the first guy to really take what the capabilities of a podcast and launch it into the stratosphere and as such open up tremendous opportunities for people such as myself to start their own channel speaking of their take on the world and their times and and putting their own little specific unique touch to this wonderful medium of being able to reach hypothetically the entire globe over the airwaves of the internet. And Joe Rogan has, you know, and it it wasn't something he set out to do. It's something that he speaks of often. He says, you know, it just sort of, it just sort of organically developed, but it has become a whopper of of a societal influence. And I would say it is, he is a tremendous uh, connector between mainstream world and alternative world. Okay, on general, general spectrum of mainstream. Mainstream being defined as dissemination of information by bigger corporate, you know, big conglomerates, corporate conglomerates. Uh, you know, media streams, the newspapers hardly anymore, but they're still somewhat, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, those are still highly valued as, you know, truth with a capital T. Um, the main news networks, all of those, anything that's big corporate owned is more of the mainstream. Alternative, much smaller, smaller influences, smaller independent people, independent thinking individuals that are using their own desires and interests and delving into the bigger, more complete story of any one thing that's just glanced over in the mainstream version of things. 
Joe Rogan is a tremendous, in my opinion, connector between those two worlds. And it's also how I imagine, it's not even imagine, I see myself equally, well, not equally, but I see myself in that same, that same position where the vast majority of this life up until 35 years old, I was a very mainstream, I was living a very mainstream life, although not successfully, not happily, particularly, um, post-college as an adult, but I was, you know, highly educated, multiple degrees, you know, top athlete, top student, top overachieving person, but really wasn't, you know, I was, I just wasn't tapped into my own unique voice or my own unique calling. I was allowing myself to be heavily influenced by things outside of me and making my choices more so by what I felt outside of me was telling me to do directly and indirectly, as opposed to having the courage and the strength to follow my own voice. And the first thing it takes is a connection to that own voice, which I would argue the mainstream world takes us away from our individuality. It takes us away from our own voice. And it's more conditioned to get you to kind of go with a a mass flow as opposed to really increasing and encouraging individual lives out there leading and interacting more as individuals independent thinking individuals, as opposed to representatives of big corporations. So Rick Doblin has been interviewed by Joe Rogan three times over the years in his capacity of being associated and the founder of this organization called MAPS. And again, if you're only just a little bit familiar with Joe Rogan, a couple of primary things that we, that almost everybody that's aware of him knows that he has tremendous interest in, and he's an, a big believer and supporter of psychedelics and marijuana. So in today's episode, one of the main reasons this is a big one for me is that, to be honest with you, there's not, you know, especially in my network prior to my awakening, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but I can, a lot of how I gauge things for me, obviously, first and foremost, based on my direct experience, but I am also tremendously sensitive energetically, and as I alluded to earlier, very strong on that emotional side and feelings, really going deep with feelings and getting very nuanced with how things feel. Almost the closest example or, or, or thing I can relate it to that might help people understand kind of what I mean are, is to use musical notes and sort of how the subtlety between, you know, B and B flat, A and A sharp, you know, subtleties and how gifted musicians can hear those subtleties just with their ear. I feel as if in my examination of my own life and really going to unprecedented places with my emotions in the past 10 years and with attempting to follow these very intuitive feelings that I cannot point to, cannot describe in an effort to manifest them into physical reality, using my feelings as my guide, manifesting a very different physical human reality for myself versus how I was living before, which was very reactionary, feeling and and looking at what had already existed, what, what was already in form in front of me and not understanding what had created that. And again, without going too much further on that tangent, all to say that the nuances of the feelings, if I were to make a generalization, and I try to do that very limitedly, but it is necessary to some degree still, I would say that the vast, vast, vast majority of my network, primarily my family and all the people that I was close to uh, in all the various work environments up until 35 years old, my sense is that not a great deal of them had direct experience with marijuana or mushrooms. And I didn't have, I had 
very little experience with either one of those substances until 2008, at which point my world was broken up. And Joe Rogan, huge supporter of psychedelics, specifically mushrooms and of marijuana. And it was in that capacity that he hosts and, and loves chatting with Rick Doblin because Rick, Joe also in a very, you know, he values science. He values factual things, things that are proven. So it, it's, you know, it. I don't know, would he have had Rick on if Rick wasn't pursuing the study of uh, alternative medicines that blow open the unseen world to be felt? He's doing it scientifically, attempting to make it and to measure it scientifically to measure these effects. Would, you know, would Joe Rogan have had Rick on just to talk about it in general without the science? Probably not. He probably only learned of Rick through the studying and educating the self-study that Joe does when he finds something of interest to him. He likely was just delving further into psychedelics when he stumbled upon the organization of MAPS because it's a rare thing. I don't know that there's anything like that organization. And this week, oh, and let me connect this with next week's. So last week we, we talked about the farm and my influence by lots of new college people at the farm. Rick Doblin is this week. Rick Doblin is a graduate of new college, but more than that, when I unexpectedly landed back in Sarasota, Florida, after the move to Seattle, where the goal in 2011 was never to return to Florida. My journey, however, brought me back at the end of 2012, and I ended up renting the master bedroom in a home here in Sarasota that is Rick Doblin's home. A home that he literally, with his hands, built with his friends, and I was living in it, and everything... I am doing my company of me, which is my physical earthbound representation of what I claim is my soul's mission. What I, my soul, my higher part of myself came here through the character of Allison with a mission as part of the greater human mission all related to the massive spiritual awakening take place, taking place. And in order to execute that in the physical, I needed to establish a company, my company of me. And all of that was born in Rick's home. And we're going to get further into that as we dive into this week's episode. And I'm connecting it to next week. Next week is about the Coso of Society. And in general, the coast of society is comprised of wicked smart individuals, very book smart, school mainstream educated, very, very smart individuals. I've not been active with the coast of society in quite a while, and I'll dive into more of that next week. If you've been listening, you know I've referenced the coast of society in multiple episodes, most notably in episode one. An academic, hugely prestigious academic honor society at the University of South Florida. I received a full academic scholarship after relinquishing my athletic scholarship by through the Coast of Society. And then I got it again as a graduate student. But I have not been active for many years. And we're going to go into why in next week's episode. But I'm linking it because my guess is, I do not know this factually, I'm basing it on feelings that the vast, vast, vast majority of Kosovo members, which probably numbers now around 150 of us lifetime that have been inducted into the Kosovo society starting in 1988 up through present day, there's probably 150, maybe more than that, I would bet very few have had experiences with mushrooms, perhaps marijuana, but probably not much beyond that if experience, if at all exper experiencing on their own personally with marijuana. Now, am I trying to push these things? No, I am not. 
I am speaking about my experience with these substances that absolutely positively changed my life and have been huge, huge components on my spiritual journey for me. Okay. So let's get into also some underlying assumptions here. Again, I've, I've kind of gone through this in previous episodes, but I'm just going to kind of, this is these following seven or eight things I think that I'm going to list here are representative of this is my, okay. I'm speaking to you as me, as my individual, I'm speaking only for me. You know, I, I'm not speaking for anybody else. Even when I reference these things, this is my story. Okay. First underlying assumption of everything that I'm doing, let alone this week's episode is that there is a massive evolutionary global shift in consciousness taking place. And when I referenced my soul's mission, I know for a fact for myself, my truth in this life is I am working to serve that shift. I want nothing more than to be part of co-creating a very different version of mass reality than what we have experienced for eons prior to this point. I don't want, I don't believe war has to be necessary. I don't believe fear, you know, control with fear is necessary. And I'm not going to go off on it anymore. There is a shift in consciousness, a shift to oneness, a shift to love, a shift to thriving communities for many, 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 many millions and millions and millions of more than what we see thriving across our planet at present. That is what I am entirely dedicating and have dedicated this life to very consciously for eight years now. Two, up until 35 years old, I always sensed this shift, but I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't have the awareness and ability to accept it as the greater truth with a capital T until my point of no return spiritual awakening that took place on November 18th, 2010. Three, six months after that spiritual awakening, I leapt into for the first time as an adult, following my voice, my heart, my calling, which had always been very, very different than the mainstream. In short, it was just bigger, faster, more inclusive. Out of this planet, literally, is how I had always seen things and experienced things but I was constantly looking for something outside of me to validate that. I didn't know yet until my awakening how to go inward and to find that God energy within me through my heart to validate what I felt calling me, what I felt I was here to do, my greater purpose in this character of Allison. Four, No accidents or coincidences. Long before my awakening, I never believed anything was just accidental and coincidental. Again, from a very, very young age, I sensed this greater truth. I sensed this shift. A not so small part of me knew, not consciously until my awakening, but knew that my soul came here to be part of the work during leading up to the shift and most notably here after the shift as we redefine everything and co-create a very different version of earth. So as part of that, I always knew that everything somehow, and I, I, I wouldn't learn this world, this word until my spiritual journey began, but synchronicity, everything is synchronicity, no accidents, no coincidences. And the walloping way that was shown to me right out of the gate of my spiritual awakening was that a job with Microsoft landed in my lap as I, again, innocently and naively 
began this journey of learning how to follow my own voice and follow this higher energy and try to align to it, surrender to it, align my human ego to it, and then serve it through my human ego. So no accidents, no coincidences, only synchronicities. Five, destiny, our destinies. In sixth grade, I was uh, one second place in my, my middle school. I was a sixth grader, and out of all the sixth, seventh, and eighth graders in a school of almost 1,000 total students, I earned the second place um, in a speech contest called Destiny. The title of it was Destiny, Choice, Not Chance. Well, interestingly, I, I would not later believe exactly. Looking back, I even still have a rough draft copy of that speech, not the final copy of it. But I absolutely know now that that wasn't even accidental. The fact that I had written a speech and as such been exposed to just even contemplating what destiny, what does that even mean to manifest one's destiny? What, you know, in examining what it meant by, you know, considering it from a chance perspective versus a choice perspective. Well, present day Allison would now say that in order to manifest our destinies, it is a combination of chance and choice. The human component, the free will of being human is the choice aspect. And the chance aspect is the representation of the higher energy. Call it God, the cosmos, the universe, source, spirit, whatever resonates with you. There is a divine plan being rolled out. So that the, 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 the divine plan places opportunities Things are not happening as an accident. It's the synchronicities. That's God. That's spirit working. But you in your human ego character still have to make free will choices when those opportunities come. Okay? And again, yes, very purposely, I'm not going off on further tangents with any of these. I'm just stating them to be revisited at some point down the line. Okay. Number six, in order to manifest reality, and this gets directly to why I named the podcast the way that I did, or the the title that I did, Best Damn Reality. It's understanding first how physical reality is created at the most general level. And at the most general level, the physical part, when it actually becomes observable, when it actually becomes able to be seen, something, first of all, we don't, we have trouble labeling something real unless you can sense it with one of our five senses. But in reality, that is the last piece of the puzzle. The last piece of the puzzle of reality is the physical manifestation. It first begins with what we're giving thought to. And at the foundation of thoughts are our beliefs. All a belief is, is a practiced thought that you have over and over and over again. Our beliefs and what we give our thought attention to, that is the ground level floor of how reality is created in physical. It starts with your thoughts. Then it gets even more power when you give voice to it. It gets even more power when you write it down. That's why writing goals and writing things down, you're you're helping to create it into physical down the line. Think it, say it, write it, and finally living it. Taking actions and living what it is that you're trying to create, quote unquote, for real. And that weaves into a big part of what I'm doing with these first 12 episodes. These are big name people that I have referenced. Joe Rogan is no small person. But I am going to make an attempt to get on, to get Joe's attention and let it let him decide if I am of an energy, of an interest level and a frequency that he wants to have on his show. 
But do I believe that I can hold my own for a three-hour-plus conversation with Joe Rogan uh, talking about very specifically how I'm, a, like, I'm almost, I would approach it from being almost a living example of Rick's work. And again, I'll get more into that when we dive into the rest of the episode. But I absolutely believe that little old Allison, who's a little nobody in the physical world, but I'm not a little nobody in terms of my human mission. None of us are. We all are being called in enormous ways to contribute uniquely to the human team, to contribute what our personality and our vessel came here uniquely to contribute. And in that regard, we are all big players. But I don't doubt for one second, I could go on Joe's show today and talk with him for three hours. Easily, easily. But I'm not going to reach out to Rick to ask to try to get Joe's eyes on an aspect of this work again and tell some a couple of more things need to be further developed. But I'm stating it now with the intention of manifesting it, of making it real, that I will someday be sitting down with Joe Rogan on one of his podcast episodes. Am I married to it? Does it need to happen? No. If it doesn't happen, I'm a-okay. If it doesn't happen, just me attempting to follow what I feel like I desire for many more reasons than just what might appear on the surface, I desire this, just by following that, even if I fall short of that goal and that never happens, all the actions I'm taking right now to try to create that in the real observable to others realm is going to take me to something else. It'll take me to what the divine plan has in store. But I can't just sit around and wait. I'm in a human vessel that has to make choices. And having, I don't know, some may say it's courageous to state something so confidently as big as this. I just feel like it's the natural thing to do. Okay, so you first must think it. And then you must, you know, express it in written form, express it in verbal form. Then you must act and live it, whatever you're trying to manifest. And then the last piece is, boop, it becomes real. And this week's episode, the podcast in general, is about creating an entirely new version of Earth. But honing it in episode by episode, this one is, could be argued, this is my you know, ultra-focused attempt to trying to manifest a real-life interaction with Joe Rogan, whether it's on his podcast or not. Okay, number seven. I am working. Everything that I'm doing and being is working with the assumption that, yes, as I said earlier, this is my story, Allison's story, unique through the experiences and skill sets and talents and strengths and weaknesses and successes and failures of Allison. But simultaneously, we are all connected. And as such, we are all part of the one human story. Which is why I think and feel and believe that there can be and will be so much relevance of my story to others. Because, yes, there are specifics, but there are also very general things that we all experience. And my story specifically can and will serve as an example of going from one extreme to the other and then ultimately finding the balance point. And what, and I'm just going to throw out a few of these general examples of spectrums where I used to be on one end of the spectrum. And then after my awakening and leading up to my awakening, I found myself on the other end, but neither end is particularly balanced or healthy. Ultimately, we all need to find that balance point, which is extremely unique for each human vessel. But these spectrums are spectrums upon which we all can place ourselves. Okay, so again, up till 35 years old, 
I was primarily on what I would say the mainstream side of the spectrum of living mainstream. And again, externally validated, externally guided, guided by something outside of myself. And on the other side of that spectrum is alternative, which I would label generally as just being self-guided, self and inner guided versus external outer guard guided. I was entirely on the self-loathing end of the spectrum. And after my awakening, I finally learned how to self-love. Okay. Now that's one that you really don't, you don't really need to find. I would argue a balance point there because I don't know if any amount of self-loathing is necessary, but what some people might see as self-loathing is you absolutely need to be real and honest with yourself, most notably about the not so positive things that you've done or said in your life. You got to be able to look at those things and examine those things within you without judging them, but being real and open about mistakes you've made or choices you made that you wish you wouldn't have or people that you might've hurt that you either did it intentionally or unintentionally. So that's how I would kind of see the middle point of those two endpoints. But I, at my core, I was self-loathing from 12 to 35 years old for the most part. And now I'm very new still to learning what it means, what it looks like, what it feels like to love myself and to know that all the serving that I want to do to humanity at large and to individuals in my life, I'm not able to do any of that anywhere near my ability until and unless I'm first taking care of myself. I like to call it divine selfishness. Okay. You do have to take care of yourself. None of us want somebody else outside of us to take care of us because nothing outside of us can guide us better than we can guide ourselves. The goal is to begin to guide humanity and guide all the individual humans to learn how to self-govern and self-guide through the God energy that is all of us through the emotion of love, which represents Another spectrum. I was not fully aware of it, but very much living, guided by, motivated by fear, as opposed to being inspired by love. Okay. So that's, that's another huge part of the shift taking place and separateness on one end of the spectrum versus oneness. And these are fine lines because yes, We are in separate bodies in in separate personalities, but at the essence of all that is, we are unique, separate expressions of the one same, all encompassing, all that is energy of consciousness. So it's learning how to navigate those extremes and finding the balance point, which is closely related to the spectrum of ego and spirit. A lot of the spiritual work that I've come across over the past decade, more of it than not, I would say, portrays our ego to be a negative thing. It's not. You just have to have it in check. Our ego, our personalities is what we're here in form navigating life through. You can't deny your ego or deny your personality or deny your character. The shift is turning over the driver's seat to spirit, to something bigger than you, learning how to connect to it and have that be the guiding point. But then your ego still needs to make the choices. Okay. So not sure how clear any of that came out, but those are sort of the, you know, just kind of stating all these energies, all these assumptions that not only underlie this episode, but also serve as underlying energetic representations and beliefs of everything that I am intending to be and do with my work. All right, let's jump into, oh my gosh, I, I really, I mean, I could go off for hours upon hours on, you know, what a role. Let's start with the first time I smoked marijuana. Because honest to God, this plant and, and, you know, 
for so many years, and I would say even kind of present day, I still hesitate around people that I feel, and I know sometimes you know it just by what they say in their judgments of, you know, to judge somebody that smokes weed is just, it's ridiculous to me that you treat weed any differently than alcohol. When you know all the damage, and I have lived relatively recently, very closely, had a front row seat in a very close relationship to alcoholism, and it was nothing short of dark, and, and I just, it's a dark substance. It's a dark substance to me, and it's legal, and the amount of violence, the amount of death, the amount of negative things that can be connected and correlated to the consumption of alcohol it's off the charts when you compare it to weed. Weed, at one of the worst case things that we can do is make you lazy, right? But to basically demonize people that smoke weed, and, and that's kind of how I was brought up, you know, and, and a lot more so 20, 30 years ago because clearly it hadn't gotten to the point, you know, there's a lot of correlation between the way I was raised as sort of a goody-goody rule-following you know, I, I don't want to break laws. I don't want to, you know, cause trouble. But, and, and, and obviously for a lot of years, weed was illegal. I would argue it never should have been illegal. And that goes off on a whole nother tangent. But there are very few people that were close to me up until my awakening, you know, that I could even speak to about when I first started um, smoking weed regularly, which was in 2010. So I was almost 30 years old before I smoked weed for the first time. In fact, I remember having the opportunity to smoke it. I I had denied my very first opportunity was in Australia, in a little city called Nimbin, Australia, was the first time that I was presented with the opportunities to take a hit from a joint. And I was still, you know, at 22 years old, extremely, I was like, no, I'm not trying weed, you know, like very afraid of it, really afraid of it more than anything. And the second time I was offered to smoke weed was actually the night before my wedding. And I believe now, I'll never know if this is true or if this would have happened, but I believe now that had I tried marijuana for the first time that night before my wedding, um, well, I can tell you this, I do not think I would have been strong enough. I'm almost certain I would not have been strong enough to call off a wedding the day of or the day before. But I can tell you that had I smoked weed, knowing what my reaction is now, knowing, you know, just a couple years later, what my reaction would be within my vessel, within my consciousness from the very first time I tried marijuana, I would have, something would have hit me more consciously of the choice I was making and how wrong that was for me. I wasn't making that choice from my voice to get married. I was making that choice very much from what I felt pressured by society, given my approaching age of mid-20s. I mean, just all these things, right? And had I smoked weed, something tells me I would have had a much more conscious level of awareness of that and as such likely would have gone down that aisle knowing I was making a mistake. As it stands, I, I didn't have any level of conscious awareness that I was making a, a mistake when choosing to marry somebody at a time and, in, in a, you know, when I didn't even know myself and it was in no position then to commit my life to somebody else when I didn't even know to, you know, what I was committing to that person. I didn't know myself. Not really, not at all, not the essence of me, not what my purpose was, not at all at a place to make that commitment. I knew that on some level, and it probably wouldn't have taken much undercoving, undercover, you know, un, you know, uncovering to find that. But I did not go down the aisle of my wedding knowingly making that mistake. You know, like I didn't. But had I smoked weed that night on the eve of my wedding, I really believe that I would have. And that would have been a lot heavier on me than what it already was trying to make a marriage work, albeit only for a few years, that I almost instantly knew was a mistake. But I didn't smoke weed for the very first time until my marriage had ended. Um, and it was, uh, let's see, 2004. So I think it was late 
2004 when I smoked it for the first time. And then I only smoked a couple of times until 2010. Probably smoked a dozen times from late 24 to late 2009. And in the beginning of 2010, I started smoking regularly with one hit a week. And it changed my life. It changed my life. It allowed me to finally chill the hell out and and just get clarity. And it allowed me to take a step to connect to this greater essence within me and to connect to my unique voice. Okay. Will it do that for everybody? Does it do that for everybody? I don't know. I'm not going to speak for everybody. I'm speaking only for me and what my experience was been. Now it would be, uh, so that was 2010. My first time doing mushrooms was actually before that was May 24th, 2009. And that was a altering, life-altering experience as well. And again, I'm not going to go off on specific details of either of those. But I will say here, they are plants. They are, well, mushrooms are fungi. Weed is a plant. They're of the earth. They're natural. They grow on its own out in nature. Ancient societies, tribal organiz- uh, tribal communities have utilized the power and the beauty of plant medicine for many, many, many thousands of years, thousands of years. And it is, in my opinion, a little bit untapped of what it could potentially be. And that is something that relatively recently Obviously, with the advent of legalization in so many states, we're seeing more and more people experiment with it. Unfortunately or fortunately, you know, like with most things, we're very extreme. We're in very polarized. And one of the things Rick attempts to do with his organization is to utilize these things in very careful settings where you, you know, you are by virtue of them, they open you up to the world of the unseen. And it's important to do it in safe environments. I was particularly guided by personalities in my life, by human beings that I trusted. And across the board, when it came to uses of psychedelics, I I was never let down by the people I was trusting to guide the use of those. And up, you know, I also had a, oh my God, I just recounted this experience a couple of days ago for the first time in years, but on July 4th, 2010, two days before I would depart to Michigan for my healing year, just a few months before my point of no return spiritual awakening, I had a group experience with like 20 to 25 of us guided by this beautiful elder shamanist woman from California The experience was here in Sarasota and it was only utilizing weed butter, marijuana butter was sort of the, the medicine that we used in this group setting and had, I, I think without doubt that that experience on July 4th was, well, it was, it would end up being sort of the last piece that I needed to have that breakthrough point of seeing, accepting, and trusting myself to follow this greater, I just, it's like they, those substances allowed me to, it's like I felt like I touched God. I, I was, I, I can't, you can't explain it with words. It's, it's, it's being open to the vastness of consciousness, which is the vaster reality, which is so far beyond what we are as just human beings in just planet earth. It is, and there is a level of fearlessness that must be present to have the courage to let your consciousness, because it's not something you can control. The medicine is in control. And it, I just, I touched God, definitely touched God with those experiences. And each time it allowed me to feel more and more confident that even though I couldn't explain it, point to it, 
like it, it, it wasn't real in the sense of everything that I had been brought up to believe represented reality, which at that point was only what I could see, touch, taste, hear, feel. It, it, the only way to get comfortable with it is, I don't know, is to, to feel and, and experience the unseen in a way that's through something you can control. I was experiencing it with the medicine as a guide and in some cases with a shaman-like person guiding the experience and allow each time it was allowing me to connect to the that aspect of myself within myself and I connect to it through my heart, through the emotion and feeling of love. Through a desire to live in a world of oneness where, where we're, I want to live in a version of earth that manifests more of that versus the very limited rule-based, fear-based, control-based, you know, aspects of our mainstream reality at present. And the substances that very much aided along with getting more and more familiar with meditation and quieting myself and slowing myself down, all of those were huge factors. And in Rick's home, everything, all of that went to a whole new level. And I know that it is not an accident that there are all these connecting points. Rick knows a lot of the people that were sort of guiding me on these journeys. They know Rick. He knows them. And a couple of these journeys were done after relocating from Seattle in that home, in that beautiful, magnificent home of his and it was, it used to be called the Maps House, but when I lived there, they had changed the name to Arcturus. And I was only there for a little over three months. But all of my, my blog, all the writing that it will be the foundation for at least one book was done in that home. The energy of being in the master bedroom where Rick himself had lived for multiple years on his own decades before I was there. The energy of the walls of that home. Because it had housed, for the most part, new college students. For the most part, the people that had rented that home over all the years. Because Rick, Rick went to Harvard for graduate school and lives up in Boston. And his organization, I believe, is based out in... I don't know if the organization is in New York or if it's in Boston. But it's up there in the Northeast. So Rick hadn't lived in his home in Sarasota for a very long time. He rented it out and it was primarily rented out to new college students. I had been there one time. Well, my brother used to rent space in the backyard there. He had a, a tent pitched in the backyard and was living there for one, uh, for a time period. So I had been there a couple of times, but I had been there one time for a party prior to living there and Let's just say that the energy present in that home in general was combined with lots of super smart people. New college students are off the charts, intelligent, book smart wise. But generally speaking, they also happen to be way more open to use of psychedelics, certainly than my mainstream network of super smart people that I was a part of. We definitely weren't smoking weed and using psychedelics, not even close. We didn't even talk about it. We weren't even tempted by it. And again, there's no judgment here, good or bad. I'm just saying that there is something definitely unique when you take extremely intelligent, logic-based, left-brain-based, very smart individuals and you combine it with the opening of the right side of the brain that psychedelics and weed are known to do. The opening of the pineal gland and definitely being correlated and aligned with much more creativity. And that, I would argue, represents a much more balanced example of a human being, left brain balanced with right brain, masculine balanced with feminine, ego physical based balanced with spirit based, unseen world based. And in that home, 
The walls spoke with that energy. And I, at this point in my journey, I was so naive. I was wide open to all of it. I didn't have much discernment at all. And thankfully, I wasn't misguided by following this because I have always been guided by love. I've always wanted to be able to live fully, openly, honestly, directly, without judgment, and trusting that others are living with the same foundation. And that collective energy is what represents the MAPS house and Arcturus. And that is what as by virtue of my business, my company, which is the launching of my vision happening within the home that was one of many representations, representations of Rick's visions, they're, again, it, they're linked. They're linked in my story. And I made Rick aware of how profoundly his home and my time being in his home was affecting my journey. I made that known to him at the end of November when I first met him. In fact, in the episode that I spoke of my basketball experience, I referenced the first and only time that I met Rick personally, which was the weekend of November 9th and 10th in 2010, as all of this was being birthed. And Joe Rogan being so open to the power of psychedelics, and yet also being very physical-based, very science-based, very evidence-based. The, the, the aspect that I want to believe is possible, that I desire to be possible, is I would love to bring a more feminine perspective and a more spirit, unseen, you know, unseen world perspective to Joe's interview room. Not to say he, he interviews plenty of women, and he talks plenty about usually when in the you know in the in the context of mushroom use he speaks of sort of the magic of consciousness but i would love if if i had to say in what regard do i see myself being able to give voice to something that serves much more than just it's not serving my ego i'm intending to serve the mission of my ego but the way i see that is much a part of the human team. And I think I could hold Joe's attention easily with the real life assimilated story of manifesting what was definitely ignited within me through the use of marijuana. And I mean, obviously there was a natural inclination to all of this prior to my use of marijuana and mushrooms. But to say that those weren't integral just would not be a factual statement for my story. And it's a combination of all of those things. And ultimately, why would I be looking to get that sort of audience? Why would I be looking to get this sort of perspective from, from a, a, a personality such as mine? through the experiences of mine? Why would I want that, the exposure that Joe Rogan show has? Simply because I believe this shift is underway. It's huge, it's enormous, and it's going to affect all people in very different ways. And the more people and the more that we can give voice to a representation of people that are living these things, but there's a lot of generalizations out there. There's a lot of judgments out there by very smart, educated, powerful people of people that use these things. And it's not just, you know, junkies and drug addicts. In fact, it's far from that. And I am all about being more open, more real, more honest about the various types of choices that are available for all of us as humans to be making. And I say it all the time, it behooves us to learn how to be with one another and respect Choices, even if they're choices that you yourself would never make. So that's sort of the gist. I have no idea if this is really going to convey what I, again, trying to speak of these things and to weave it all together in the bigger story in just an hour, almost impossible. 
but I just wanted to give a glimpse. I also wanted to state very specifically what the dream would be as it pertains to Rick and Joe. I haven't spoken to Rick since this all was birthed, so I can't wait to give him an update, even if it's just a single email exchange that I have with Rick, and it never goes any further than that, that will feel so magnificent. Because the two emails I did exchange with him way back when this all began at the end of 2013, I still have them in my, in my, you know, in my email account, and I just reread them this morning, and it's, it's magic. Because everything comes down to energy and not being attached, following your heart, making choices based in love, but not being attached emotionally, physically, or otherwise to having or needing something specific to happen. I would love an interview with Joe Rogan to happen, but if it doesn't happen, it's absolutely a-okay. But what I can guarantee is it won't happen if I'm not giving voice to it being courageous enough to state something and courageous because if it doesn't happen on the surface level, mainstream approach to things, it can look like a failure, you know, that I, I failed and I don't believe in failures or mistakes. There's only things that happen that are desirable and things that happen that are undesirable. And I don't label it, you know, it's, 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 I'm okay if it never happens. And I'm completely confident in making the statement that I did. And I would love to conclude just by expressing tremendous gratitude to both of these men. Rick li living his vision, clearly this guy to have the courage to do what he's, you know, in his time to go off to try to scientifically prove the, you know, the validity and the ability of psychedelics to serve health and well-being. That's a pretty courageous thing to do at the time that he did it. MAPS was founded in 1986. I don't think there were a lot of people trying to give, you know, this sort of scientific validation to something that had a probably different connotation in, in terms of the psychedelics. Him having the courage to live his vision anytime any one of us has the courage to follow our voice and to manifest our dreams it gives and paves the way for everybody that's doing it, quote unquote, after us. And Joe Rogan, oh God, he's like one of my biggest role models and inspirations. I love watching his interviews. I love what he does. And if I had the recent interviews that I've, I've watched with him, I would say that I would be potentially sort of a combination of the interviews that he's had with Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson about ancient societies, the interviews he's had with crazy Alex Jones, who's known kind of as a conspiracy theorist, but, and, and a guy that almost has a heart attack anytime he speaks, cause he's just, he's so amped up. But Joe is good friends with Alex Jones. And I, I kind of speak of sort of the same sort of, to some degree, some of the things as Alex, but coming at it from a very feminine perspective versus Alex is just all guy. He's man, you know, and guns and violence and protecting. And I'm, I'm not judging it. I'm just saying I could serve as sort of a, I, I watched his most recent one with Alex Jones and thought some of the stuff that Alex is bringing to the surface is so important, but he can potentially turn a lot of people off because he's so amped, because he kind of comes a little bit more from, from more of the violent side. And I appreciate the work that he does. Don't agree with everything that comes out of his mouth, but I, I, I liken some aspects of what I feel comes through me to some of what Alex does. Definitely Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson. I watched an episode from four years ago with Jesse Ventura, who was the former uh, governor of Minnesota. Um, oh my God, tons of things resonated with me in that episode. Um, so I don't know. And, and I'd, I'd probably say the, the one, I saw Joe interviewed by Jordan Peterson in something relatively recently. And Joe started to tear up as he recollected one of the most powerful experiences he had as a host of Fear Factor. 
And Joe has a soft spot for people pushing themselves and achieving things beyond what they thought they could do. And he spoke of this mother-daughter team that took on this father-son team in like the finals of a Fear Factor episode. And the guy literally was brought to tears as he recollected the power of being a huge part of being the motivator and supporter and inspirer of this female team to show themselves what they could do beyond what they ever thought they were capable of doing. And I would say that is the greatest aspect of Joe that I appeal to, that that I resonate with and that I sort of appeal to as on behalf of all humanity, I promise I'm going to put something together that suits his environment that tries to serve all of us. And I just thank him for the work that he does because it's just, again, may not agree with everything that comes out, you know, all of his perspectives, but he gives voice to independent thinking. He does the research on his own. He's wickedly smart and intelligent, and he provides a platform for many perspectives that wouldn't otherwise get any sort of shot. And at this time in our planet, we need alternative perspectives and alternative voices to have greater platforms. So thank you to Joe, but especially to you, Rick, the role your home played. I mean, I know you didn't directly make a choice to support me or to help me or to be part of my journey, but you were by extension. And I, I thank you and I look forward to reaching out to you soon. And to all you listeners, thanks for sticking with me if you stick through these 12 episodes because they are, you know, a bit all over, a bit out there, but they are being guided whether you're able to believe it or not. They are definitely being guided and the intention is coming from something much beyond just the character of Allison. But the character of Allison is all I've got to use to communicate and live the greater truths that I've experienced and that have been exposed to me and that have represented my greater reality now for almost a decade. Okay, have a great rest of your days and we'll talk to you next time.